This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the program, we are going to meet two members of the new leadership in Lansing. Garland Gilchrist II is the state's new lieutenant governor, the first African-American to be elected to that post. And Lee Chatfield is the youngest person in more than a century to become House Speaker in Lansing. We will hear from both of them about the history that they're making, as well as their plans now that they are taking power in Lansing. But first, this week, a new state legislature gavels in for its new two-year session, and it'll be the first time in eight years that we've seen divided state government in Michigan. Republicans have been in charge for a long time. They retain control in both chambers of the legislature, but with smaller majorities compared to years past. And there's now a Democrat in the governor's office in Gretchen Whitmer. So, What can we expect from this session in Lansing? Joining us now to talk more about that is Emily Lawler. She is a state capitol reporter for MLive. Emily, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with uh, Governor Whitmer, who wasted no time getting started on her agenda after being sworn in uh, last week. Uh, She is asking new Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel to review some controversial legislation that passed during lame duck. Catch us up on what she is doing. Yeah, so the Line 5 issue is probably the biggest thing that she's done. Um, The legislature kind of uh, passed that at the very end of the session. The governor appointed the board very quickly, um, and Governor Whitmer has some questions about um, various constitutional provisions that uh, that process or that the law itself could be violating. So I think that um, uh, she's asked Dana Nessel to weigh in on it. Um, Dana Nessel is kind of taking an unusual move in um, asking other parties to give input. Um, before she puts an opinion out. But I do think that that's a a high priority for Dana Nessel and something we'll hear more about not too far out. Yeah. Uh, Dana Nessel also has decided to pursue the criminal inquiry into the Flint water crisis a little differently than her predecessor. Tell tell us uh, what she's up to there. Yeah, um, she's essentially looking for an outside pair of eyes, it seems like, at this point, um, and asking Kim Worthy um, to review uh, the case. I'm not sure exactly yet what that means for the future of the case, um, as to whether it could be um, taken over, as to whether Todd Flood would not be the one prosecuting that anymore. But it seems like she's at least taking some steps in that direction and exploring the options for um, for getting this case forwarded. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting to see see this early, the governor working sort of hand in hand, I guess, with the attorney general. And I guess uh, that seems odd to us now because for the last eight years, there's been sort of a strain and maybe a competitive strain, I guess, between former Governor Rick Snyder and former Attorney General Bill Schuette, who were uh, uh, members of the same party, uh, but saw things really differently. Uh, th- there, there is something interesting, though, about, and, and I guess maybe deliberate uh, is maybe the word I'm looking for, about the way that Whitmer, uh, right out of the gate, uh, starts working with Attorney General Nessel on the, the things that matter to her. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right that we saw kind of a, a big divide between Shooty and Snyder and style and substance, perhaps. Uh, you know, that is a potential for a divide between um, Whitmer and Nestle, right? Nestle kind of ran on this um, uh, 
progressive end of the party um, in a convention race. Whitmer has struck a very bipartisan tone, um, different than than what Nestle did during her campaign, certainly. So, um, you know, it's interesting to see them uh, working so closely together right off the bat. Uh, It really does seem like um, Whitmer might know that she needs an ally in the attorney general, especially with uh, this divided uh, power in the the Republican legislature she'll be working with. well, now I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about the upcoming legislative session. Uh, Governor Whitmer, when she was a candidate, made a lot of the idea that it is time to fix Michigan's roads and it is time to think of things that we might have thought were unthinkable up until now to do that. I imagine that will be one of the things, at least, that they get after First, uh, tell us what to expect uh, from from that negotiation and what else might be on the agenda. Yeah, you know, that's one thing that we haven't heard too much directly about yet. Um, she spent a couple um, of her first biggest moments um, signing executive orders. Um, so she's kind of uh, putting state government in the in the boxes that make sense to her, maybe, rather than uh, Rick Snyder. Um, and I think kind of getting at some organizational underlying stuff, we haven't heard much about um, direct policy issues yet, but I expect that when we do, when we start hearing about that, roads will be um, you know, pretty much top of the list, so along with clean drinking water is another one of her big priorities. But um, yeah, you know, I'm wondering if maybe uh, her state of the state address could be a, a time to lay some of that on the table. Um, we haven't heard much yet, but I do think that, you know, she spent her um, state of the state address uh, really giving the olive branch to Republican leadership. And I think that she's laid a lot of the groundwork to be able to work with them on, on her signature issues, uh, roads probably principally. Yeah. Uh, also, that budget message that the governor delivers early each year is going to be, I think, a key way that we'll start to understand how she's going to approach things like the roads. She wasn't terribly specific about what plan she would favor in the campaign, we'll we'll see at least from her perspective what uh, what she thinks ought to be done pretty pretty quickly. I think. I think that's true. And and on the campaign trail, she did lay out kind of a um, a backup plan, I suppose, for for the bonding as well, instead of uh, seeking it directly through a legislative route. So, you know, maybe we'll see pretty quickly whether the backup plan is is in action or if she's uh, pursuing things like fee increases. Yeah. Okay, Emily Lawler, state capital reporter at MLive. Uh, buckle up. I think it's going to be quite a session, especially early uh, there in Lansing. But uh, thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Up next, we are going to hear from Michigan's new lieutenant governor, Garland Gilchrist II. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and we will. Uh, you can listen to us whenever you are ready. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. For the first time in a very, very long time, a Detroit native has been elected to the governor's office. 
Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist II is also the first African-American to ever serve in that role. Gilchrist has had a prolific and accomplished political career, and he's only in his mid-30s. He now serves at the governor's side and will play an important role as her main voice in the state legislature, where he will preside over the Senate. I recently spoke with Gilchrist on American Black Journal, a show that I host on Detroit Public Television. We talked about his life, his career, and his new position. Here's that conversation. Welcome to the show. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we have to start with congratulations. I haven't seen you since uh, the election in November. Uh, I, I remember when you were first uh, starting to run for city clerk, we were talking about sort of the idea of, you know, uh, a campaign and this sort of opening yourself up uh, to people and to voters. Uh, I, I'm really curious, when you got to election day this year, what it felt like. Well, first of all, you know, the governor-elect and I want to thank everyone for supporting us. We want to thank Michigan for stepping up and really breaking records in terms of voter turnout and participation. And it is a tremendously humbling honor to be on the winning side of such an historic election. And yes, I, it is also an honor to be the first black lieutenant governor of Michigan, the first Detroiter to serve in this important position. And it's an important um, thing for our administration to have our whole team be reflective of everyone in the state of Michigan, for people to look at the government and look at our leadership and know that they can see themselves, that kids can see themselves in our leadership. It's a great opportunity and we're gonna work really hard to match yeah, that. I, I went back and looked. The last person to be elected to either the governorship or the lieutenant governorship from the city of Detroit was George Romney. Right. Uh, that's a long time ago. Most <laughs> of us were not alive. When I was that not happened. born when George Romney right. was in office. Was I, right? <laughs> uh, so that's, I mean, it's a very big deal to, just to have a Detroiter, but then to have an African American. Uh, and it's it's been since Richard Austin was Secretary of State. Yes. Uh, since we've had any African Americans in the executive branch uh, in a statewide office. And Richard Austin's, Austin's distinguished service is yeah. something that you know I certainly have learned from over the years and want to really take inspiration from and there, there are just so many people who have stepped up in such big ways but not just elected officials but I also want to thank the people who step up and work hard for democracy every day whether it's in the city of Detroit in the city of Flint in Escanaba in the Upper Peninsula in Niles Michigan the people stepping up and standing tall and making sure that people's voices are heard in the electoral process are who made this happen and now we're excited to work together with everyone in the state of Michigan to ensure that people see themselves reflected in the governance of our state yeah yeah. So I, I want to start by talking about the job that you've been elected to do. And let's start by looking at the last two people to do that job. Brian Kelly is somebody who had legislative experience uh, and, and sort of knew the players uh, in, in Lansing. John Cherry is someone who had a tremendous amount of legislative experience. And I, I think the reason that they were chosen for that job is because historically the lieutenant governor is the person who deals with the legislature goes over there and, you know, knocks heads if necessary to, to get the votes in line and get the governor's agenda uh, through. Your experience is is more as, uh, a, a, I guess I would call you a civil rights advocate for voting mm -hmm. and uh, access uh, is really the, the, the issue that you focus on. How does that experience match up with the requirements of this job? Sure. So. 
First off, I've had the honor of being able to spend time with my immediate three predecessors, actually. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly has been uh, just a tremendous example of what the transfer of power should look like mm -hmm. in the United States. And it's been really, really great to benefit from his generosity and his time. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Cherry, very similar. I've spent a lot of time with him learning from his wisdom. And also former Lieutenant Governor Dick Postumus as uh, who's well. Who's still around who's as still well. still around right? as his Governor Chief of Staff. So they've been very generous and, and helping me get ready for, for this role. And yes, there is a legislative function that is defined in the Constitution <laughs> having to be the does. president of the state Senate. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time um, ramping up on the, the machinations of the Senate. I have spoken with on the phone or in person nearly every incoming senator. There are 38 of them, nearly every incoming senator who I'll be working very closely with. Mm -hmm. You know, most importantly, in addition to that responsibility, Lieutenant Governor's job is to work with the governor to ensure that we move Michigan forward. And so Governor-elect Whitmer, you know, her experience as a legislator, her experience as a negotiator and as a leader is something that she brings to the office and I think that's going to make her successful. My experience complements that very well. And so we're going to work together to utilize both of our assets and both of our strengths, whether it's to push forward our legislative agenda or to push forward our agenda beyond the legislature to ensure that people in Michigan understand that their leadership is listening to them, will respond to them, will respect them, and that we're going to move the state forward. So, so give me some idea of the things that you and Governor-elect Whitmer are talking about in terms of what that agenda will look like after January 1st. Yeah, so first it starts with what I talked about in terms of making state government better at listening, better at respecting and responding to people. We think the relationship needs to be reset for a number of people. There are communities in the state like Flint where the state government, they feel like it has turned its back on them or had failed them in some way. And so our administration is gonna make sure to have people feel that they're being listened to. Um, that involves making sure that our government actually looks like a 21st century government. So that there are ways when you have a touch point with the government, whether it's in person, whether it's on your cell phone, whether it's online, that it's a high quality experience. So working with the professionals who work in state government to make that possible. Letting them know that we are with them and have their back, that we support and respect and want to hear and execute on their ideas because I believe that they have solutions to some of the problems. I want to think about, you know, how do we enable possibility in Michigan, enable imagination? You know, my personal story is one of a kid whose grandma bought him a computer when he was five years old <laughs> and she opened the door to possibility for me. I want kids across the state to be connected to the internet, connected to technology. And right now that's not true for kids, whether it's in Detroit or whether it's in Munising. And we have to make sure that it's true for, for people all across the state of Michigan. Um, I'm also a person who is a transit rider. And so ensuring that people have access to high quality um, public transit where they can get to school, they can get to work, they can get to healthcare services. So these are things that we talked about during the campaign trail that we wanna make sure are, we're making progress on when we're in leadership. Uh, roads, of course, is, is a huge issue statewide and it was one of the issues that Governor-elect Whitmer really focused on during the campaign and it came up with a clever line, fix the damn roads, that I think was pretty popular. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to do what she wants to do or what she's talked about doing, uh, she's going to have to get Republican help. And really, to, to do anything, she's going to have to get Republican help because they still hold both houses uh, of the legislature. How, how quickly do you think we'll see some movement on that after, uh, after you guys are inaugurated January 1st? And what role do you see yourself playing 
in maybe trying to get a deal? Sure. Well, the purpose of the transition is to prepare to govern and to understand what the current state of state government is and to be prepared to move forward on day one, on January 1st at 12.01 p.m. when we are officially in our <laughs> leadership position. And so we're going to get to work right now on things like preparing for the budget which is really the first big thing that we need to introduce. And in our budget, you're going to see the priorities that we talked about um, during the campaign, including you know, how we're going to approach infrastructure. And we need to work with Republicans on that. In my role as president of the Senate, I'm going to have a direct relationship with all 38 Republicans, with the leadership and the, 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 the majority leader, um, Senator Shirky, with the president pro tem, Senator Nesbitt, with uh, Senator McGregor, the floor leader. We're going to be working with them because we have a state to lead and we need to lead it together. And you know, I think that this legislature is going to be very different than the legislature that is exiting. Mm -hmm. And so we are looking forward to having productive conversations and productive negotiations. And the governor-elect and I are going to be very active in those negotiations. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of your background is in technology uh, and, and using technology to increase voter access, uh, make sure that people's voting rights uh, are respected. Uh, look through that lens at Michigan right now and talk about I don't know what what might be on your mind uh, as you go into a leadership position. Well, there are a lot of opportunities to make it easier to vote. And the voters of Michigan spoke, I think, very loudly by passing proposals two and three, um, changing the way that we draw political boundaries and also just making it easier for people to have access to the ballot box. And so we want to build on the will of the voters by implementing those those new pieces of law in a as, as expedient and responsible way as possible. Did, Actually, there are some big opportunities for the Secretary of State yeah. as well, the incoming Secretary of State elect Jocelyn Benson, who I think has some good ideas about how to make voting process, how to make it better, how to make it more trustworthy and more accessible. And I think technology is going to play a role in that. And so I certainly um, want to be helpful to making it easier for people in Michigan to vote. What, what did you make of the lame duck activity uh, that was aimed at those those provisions in uh, Prop 3 that were supposed to make it easier for people to vote, make it more universal. Uh, was that, that concern you or is that stuff that you think you'll have to address uh, once you're in the, the lieutenant governor's office? Well, it's certainly disappointing to yeah. see, you know, very direct um, attempts to undermine the will of the voters, to undermine the authority of, income, of the incoming administration. And so that, that's very unfortunate. And we think the legislature um, was irresponsible in choosing to do that. And But we are obviously monitoring the, the situations very closely, and we will know very soon what will be law and what will not. And we're preparing to work with whatever the law is on day one of January 1st. And it will be a very different legislature after the first. You know, Democrats made gains in both the Senate they and did. the House and the dynamics and the, of the negotiations going forward, I think, will be very different. And we think that they can be productive. And we You've also got that. just uh, uh, this tremendous turnover because of term limits uh, that, that brings new faces. Right. Even though they will still be uh, majority Republican, it's people who, who haven't been there before. And I will say, in my conversations that I've had, particularly with, with the senators who are incoming, you know, they understand that we have a state to lead together. And you know, this is what the, the people of Michigan spoke when they voted in who they voted in. And now they expect us to work together. And I'm certainly excited to do that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little about Detroit. Um, uh, as, as we said, you're the first Detroiter to be part of the, the, the governor's mansion, uh, the, the, the gubernatorial team uh, since, since George Romney, which again, every time you say that, it's like uh, it's talking about a prehistoric era almost. Um, what, what kinds of things do you think you bring to the conversations uh, in, in Lansing about 
uh, Detroit and Flint and the other cities in the in in the in the state that will that will look different from uh, your predecessors. Well, first, I, I want to say the presence is important, and so you know the I will have an office in the city of Detroit that will be an active one and will be a responsive one. And so, you know, we have offices right there on West Grand Boulevard and um, we expect people to be able to interact with us and engage with our administration there. So that's one thing, just being present and, and being accessible is important to our administration. It's what we've campaigned on and we want to govern in an accessible way also. And I think just the perspective and life experience, you know, um, as a person who's a transit rider, as a person who um, has worked and worshiped in the city, as a person who just has been in conversation and relationship with people from all different walks of life, as a person who cares very deeply about the challenges of poverty and lack of affordable housing and how that acutely impacts people in city centers, um, talking about that with our colleagues who live in different parts of the state, connecting those challenges to how poverty looks in rural parts of our state as well and understanding that we can come together, connecting these challenges of lack of access to information into the internet, which impacts the Upper Peninsula almost as acutely as it impacts the east side of Detroit. Mm -hmm. Making those connections and trying to sort of use the experience of my peers, of, of, of fellow Detroiters, and bringing that presence into those conversations, I believe adds a different dynamic to, to what's gonna come out of those negotiations and conversations, so excited about that. Have you gotten any sense so far in, in your interactions with legislators about the possibilities there? I have long thought that, that the Democratic Party in particular uh, has had an opportunity to bridge the gap between urban centers where you have high poverty and rural places where you have similar high poverty, but that it looks very different. But that's a commonality that you would think uh, it would be easier to bridge. Uh, do you get any feedback from outstate legislators so far that suggests that's possible? Well, I certainly think it's possible, and we're going to we're going to try to push hard to to find common ground and find commonalities and find shared human experiences because I think that's the foundation of great negotiation and of ultimately good policy that works for people across the state. I understand that this is a statewide office, but we are a state where individual people in different parts of the state have very different experiences. But if we can connect on the parts of those experiences that are shared, we have a big opportunity to move things forward for everybody. And so I'm going to be you know, unapologetic in talking about not only my experience, but the experience of people um, whom I'm connected to. And I know that my fellow um, colleagues and legislators, they're gonna be doing the same thing. And I think we're gonna uncover a lot of opportunities. So I'm optimistic. Hmm. Uh, I also wanna talk about race uh, because you're the first African-American to be elected uh, to, to the lieutenant governorship and, again, the first uh, African-American elected to a, an executive branch statewide position here uh, since Richard Austin. Um, uh, w when you think about the, w the, the ways in which state policy impacts African-Americans differently, you think about cities like Detroit and Flint, uh, you think about all the, the things that, that we've been talking about for a long time yes. that don't work uh, yeah. f for us uh, in cities like this. What would you like to do about that? Well, first, we there needs to be just a, a recognition from the government that that's true, uh, well, and sometimes that's there's, a been, tough there's thing been denial. Right? There's been denial about that in places. And you and like on the campaign trail, for example, we talked a lot about the fact that in the issue of education, the fact that research shows that you need to spend more to educate children and people in areas where there is high poverty. And our, the way that we fund education hasn't always reflected that in the state of Michigan. So one of the one of the proposals that we're gonna be working on with our education leaders in the state and with legislators is to get to a place where we are equitably funding education. And that's something that will have direct impact 
on, in places where there are persistent poverty. And in a lot of places where there are persistent poverty in Michigan, a lot of people of color live. A lot of black people live, Flint, Saginaw, Ben Harbor. Um, and so we wanna work hard to ensure that policy is responsive to people's needs because that's the purpose of policy, to get things done for people. And that policy, in order to be truly responsive, has to recognize that race is a factor, that socioeconomic status is a factor, that level of education is a factor, um, that, that health and access and disabilities and all these are factors and the policy that's robust needs to understand that and, and respond to that. You know, um, you hinted at this earlier that, that there's been this trust that's been broken with people in some places uh, in the state and Flint, I think, comes to people's minds first and there's a racial dimension yeah. uh, to that, that that I think, as always, aggravates the, yeah. the efforts to, to, to move forward or to fix what got broken. Talk about how this administration might approach that fact of the Flint crisis, not the, the pipe replacement and the, the, the sort of practical end of it, but that, that trust end of it differently than the current administration. Well, it starts with presence. You know, um, during the campaign, on the first day of campaign season, which is typically that day after Labor Day, mm -hmm. I was there in Flint with Mayor Weaver and other officials at 7 a.m. that morning welcoming Flint families to their first day of school. We went to an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, and an early childhood center. And presence is important. Presence is how you build relationship. Relationships are built on trust and relationships are built on presence. And so we're gonna make sure that we are in relationship and in communication and, and are letting people know what we're thinking, letting people know and experience the fact that we are listening to what's happening on the ground and, and that our policy is gonna reflect that, our plans are gonna reflect that, and people are gonna be involved in how we do those processes. So, you know, my experience as a community organizer showed me that the people who are most directly impacted by public policy need to be at the table when public policy is being designed. And so, you know, it's our intention to have big ears, you know, and a big heart as we are building relationship and we're trying to heal those broken relationships and those, and those wounds. Uh, let's, let's end with uh, some discussion of the personal uh, milestone and achievement here for you. Uh, I, I, most, I think almost no one knows this, but uh, you and I lived in the same neighborhood when you were born. Uh, <laughs> so in a way, I've known you for a really, really long time. Uh, but, but I know I know a lot about your career as well. Talk about the, 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 the sort of uh, feeling that accompanies this moment. It is, it is incredibly humbling. I mean, you know, public service is a privilege bestowed upon people by voters. And, and so I approach this from just really just in awe of the, the possibility and the opportunity and, and thankful and, and an eternal gratitude for people for stepping up and for working hard and creating this possibility for someone like me, for a kid who was just like a skinny kid who lived on Wood Circle, um, <laughs> who had the opportunity now to serve not just the people of Detroit, not just the people of Wayne County, but the people of the 10th largest state in the country. And I'm proud to, to, to step into that role alongside other history makers across the country. You know, the role of Lieutenant Governor um, is one where we're seeing black 
people step into across the country. We have five black lieutenant governors That's in true. New Jersey, Louisiana, I mean, New Jersey, Virginia, Wisconsin, and in, in Illinois all have uh, black lieutenant governors in, in addition to Michigan. And that's really, I think, a, a testament to you know, communities wanting to see themselves reflected in leadership. And I'm humbled that, that people in Michigan asked me to step up and play that role. And I'm humbled to do that alongside Governor-elect Gretchen Whitmer. Well, congratulations again. And uh, we'll get you back in here after you guys get to work. And uh, I'm sure there will be a lot of fireworks. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having okay. me, Steve. Thanks for, for being here. All right, up next, we're going to speak with another young new leader in Lansing, incoming State House Speaker Lee Chatfield. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. The State House and Senate kick off their new session this week, and they do it under very different circumstances compared to just a couple of weeks ago. There's now a Democrat in the governor's office, and Republican majorities in the legislature have shrunk a bit. The person who will lead the House this session will be the youngest House Speaker in more than a century. And while Lee Chatfield may be young, in the age of term limits, he really has as much experience as anyone else in the House in terms of how long he's been there. He's also already served in leadership and has been a committee chair. Lee Chatfield joins us now to talk more about his leadership agenda in Lansing. Representative Chatfield, speaker, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to be on, and I thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad you have uh, joined us. Uh, let's start with you talking about what the priorities for the House of Representatives will be this session. Certainly. Well, I can tell you this. The first day of session begins this Wednesday. Uh, constitutionally, that's when we're required to have swearing in. So there will be many conversations that will begin on that day, and I am eager to get to know all of my incoming colleagues, whether they're on the Republican or the Democrat side, because I think we have a unique opportunity here in the state of Michigan uh, in the next coming years. Uh, with there being divided government for the first time in the past eight years, we're going to see a return to I, what I hope to be relationship building, uh, working collaboratively with one another, and finding ways that we can move our state forward. So, you know, many of these priorities will be formed simply through those conversations. Uh, but personally, um, if I were to answer that question, I could boil it down to three things uh, that I have priorities on. Number one, I think we need to do more to lower the cost of car insurance. I think it's the single largest issue that's holding our state back and saddling our constituents, the people we serve, with burdensome costs. Number two, listen, if you filed the 2018 gubernatorial election, you know that roads certainly play a pivotal part in that. And yes, the roads need to be fixed. I think we need to find a way to provide a sustainable revenue source to our roads, ensure that there's the proper oversight channels in place so that people, when they're driving on our roads, know that they can be kept safe. And number three, personally, I'm going to talk about expanding the Freedom of Information Act and government accountability and transparency to state lawmakers. Hmm. Michigan ranks dead last in the arena of government transparency when you compare us with the rest of the country. And I think that's unacceptable. I think we can take many strides to improve those things. And you saw the House lead on that last year. I was the lead sponsor in the House with now Senate elect or with Senator Moss. 
who's now serving in the Senate. And that was a bipartisan solution that we put forward. It did not get through the Senate. But I will tell you this, the House has led on that in the past. The House will lead on that again. And we won't stop until we get that done. So those would be my top three priorities. And what you'll notice about them, these are not Republican and Democrat issues. These are issues that impact you know, people in the state of Michigan. And I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that we can find solutions to get those done. So let's start with uh, insurance, auto insurance. There there have been several proposals made in Lansing to change the way we, we deal with that issue here. Each each one is touted as a way to lower costs. Uh, and and they but they differ in, in terms of the levers that they pull to do that, uh, talk a little about what you think are the the, the key components of, of legislation that, that, that you think will make it cheaper for people to have auto insurance in Michigan. Sure. So let me start first with the process and then go to the policy, because uh, unfortunately, I am a believer that the process, when it gets too convoluted and when there's certain steps that aren't taken and the I's aren't dotted and the T's aren't crossed, it can then poison the policy. And first, let me say this, whatever, whatever reforms we come up with needs to be through diligent and patient deliberation where we take our time and we find a way to get this done. The reason for that is this. This cannot be uh, an insurance industry-driven package. This cannot be a health uh, care sector-driven package. This needs to be a package that focuses on how can we ensure we lower the cost of car insurance while at the same time providing choice of care so people can retain the quality care that we have in the state of Michigan. While, I, while I'm a believer that we need to lower the cost of car insurance, I will not deny that we have the, the best health coverage when it comes to car insurance because fundamentally we're not discussing car insurance. We're discussing health insurance. Medical I think insurance, it's, right. I, absolutely. I think it's unacceptable and, quite frankly, embarrassing that we have people, I have people in my district, we have people across our state, they pay more for their car insurance than they pay on their car, which means you're actually insuring uh, your health. You're not insuring your car. So, you know, now going to the policy, I think if you, if you provide and put provisions within any reform that simply gives people freedom, it gives people the choice of coverage that they want, you will see a reduction in cost because I do believe that any program that is only sustained by a government mandate will make costs rise. And there's some people in my district up in northern Michigan, quite frankly, they want to pay less and they're okay with taking that risk on getting less coverage. But the fact is this, it's easier to poison a well than to dig one. And whenever you start talking about car insurance reform, you're going to have these horror stories put out there. And the fact is there are 12 states only that have auto no-fault reform in the country, and we have the highest rates of those 12. We can learn from other states. We can have many reforms, uh, whether we're focused on fraud, giving people choice, talking about attendant care. We can take steps. We will take steps. And I think it's time that we stop the partisan bickering and find a way to get it done. So so the pushback against that approach is the idea that you're creating, uh, you know, a second class kind of care for people who have maybe less money than than other people. And you think about here in the city of Detroit, the number of people who would be likely to choose something that, that would provide them much less care than somebody else is, is quite large. I would imagine that's also true 
uh, as you point out, up in northern Michigan, uh, the, the area that you represent. Why is that okay? Well, I think the narrative that was just created and, and what I hear about is false. I think the thinking that, oh, simply because someone has more money now, they're going to purchase the Cadillac plan, quite frankly, is not true. I have plenty of people in my district who I don't believe their car insurance is bankrupting them month to month that think they pay too much because they just moved from another state and they say it's outrageous that I'm paying more to insure one vehicle than I did three in another state. But number two, you also have to think about those that are retired. In northern Michigan, I have a higher population of those that are retired, and they say, Lee, I drive much less than my neighbors. I take very few risks you know, when I'm traveling. Why do I have to pay the same? My, you know, and they, they get into their age, and they start talking about different things. You know, Michigan's the only state in the country that requires you purchase unlimited coverage no matter what your health care coverage is. I think that's unfair. So some might, as you referred in the question, call it a second-class coverage. No, I think we're talking about first-class freedom. We're giving people choice. This is America, and I, as a state representative, don't necessarily know better than all of them. I view this as a government-run auto insurance plan that I am giving it to the people that sent me here and saying, take this, buy it, I know what's best. Mm. And I don't think that's right. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Representative Leach Hatfield. He is the incoming State House Speaker, a Republican who represents Michigan's 107th House District up in the tip of the northern lower peninsula. Uh, we're talking about uh, the new legislation or the new legislative session in Lansing. What's on the agenda? What will get done? How will the relationships unfold? between the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor, something we haven't seen for quite a time here in Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind as the legislative session gets underway. What questions do you have for the incoming House Speaker about uh, the issues that are on the table? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Scott in Westland. Scott, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, hi. Um, I wanted to talk about Line 5. Um, I think there's been a lack of clarity uh, in a lot of the reporting that I've heard on Line 5 in that there's a sharp distinction to be made between natural gas and propane on the one hand and crude oil on the other. Uh, I talked to a member of Governor Snyder's uh, staff uh, late last year, and I was told that the deal that they struck with the uh, 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 pipeline company is going to allow light crude oil to be shipped, to continue to be shipped uh, through Line 5 more or less indefinitely. Uh, the only thing that they're not going to allow is so-called bitumen, which is that Alberta tar sands oil, which is heavier and more toxic. Mm -hmm. But I think that that has no uh, practical environmental benefit. That basically propane and natural gas aren't going to wash up on your beach. And it's funny that I've heard some environmental activists say that they think that propane should be shipped in rail cars around the straits. Why? <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know if, if there was a major rupture of Line 5 and it was shipping propane or natural gas, it might be a fire hazard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the long-term environmental threat is from crude oil. That's... And I don't think that there's really a big distinction, you know, to be made there between light crude oil 
and the so-called uh, bitumen so, uh, so, crude oil. And so I, I think that this deal that they've uh, struck, that the Republicans struck late last year, uh, basically accomplishes nothing uh, you know, to protect the environment. Right. Uh, uh, Scott, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and, and the comments. Uh, Lee Chatfield, talk about this deal to replace uh, a part of Line 5 with a tunnel beneath the Straits and the ongoing uh, pumping of crude oil through through that line uh, and and whether you think what what was agreed to prevents the the possibility for for huge national uh, or natural disasters. Well, first I want to actually thank Scott for the question because he he presented a set of facts that I think are often ignored when we talk line five and. And Line 5, because it's in a, potentially an environmental issue, like many issues, it is much easier, Steve, to let rhetoric win the day than serious policymaking discussions. And I appreciate the question and how it was framed. First, let me answer it in two ways. Number one, I'm from northern Michigan. Line 5 runs through the heart of my district. And those are the lakes that I grew up fishing in, the rivers that I swam in. They go through our inland waterways. Protecting our Great Lakes and our natural resources is a top priority for me. And that's why not only did we pass recently in Lame Duck the plan that would allow the construction of a tunnel at no cost to the taxpayers, but months before that, the House adopted my package, and you will see more conversation on this next term, a plan that holds pipeline operators accountable. Because when we're going to be transporting these energy resources, which we need for our daily lives, we just have to ask ourselves the simple question, what is the safest way to transport them? And I am convinced that when pipelines are properly maintained, they're properly inspected, they remain the safest method. So number one, we need to hold pipeline operators accountable, and the state of Michigan needs to have access to those plans. Right now we do not, and they're only sent to the federal government. I'm going to continue focusing on that. Number two, the construction of the tunnel. Now, you will never, whether you're flying in an airplane, driving in a car, transporting energy, you will never completely eliminate 100% of the risk. But what you can do are take necessary steps to mitigate it. I actually laud Governor Snyder for bringing Enbridge to the table and ensuring that we could get that tunnel constructed. Now, I know there's additional, there's going to be potential litigation. Who knows regarding that? But yes, it, elim- it, it really mitigates the risk. And you know what? If we connected our peninsula 60 years ago with the construction of a bridge, I think we need to continue asking ourselves the question, What's the safest way to transport these natural resources, whether, whether it's light crude oil, whether it's natural gas? And I think laying that infrastructure along with other necessary infrastructure through that tunnel is the best way to do it. Hmm. Uh, we've got a couple of questions on Twitter about, uh, about the, uh, the attention that you got last fall when you were detained at Pelston Regional Airport in northern Michigan when the TSA found a loaded gun in your carry-on, uh, lots of people asking about judgment and uh, the way in which you sort of deal with, uh, you know, firearms. Uh, obviously, we, we live in a country where, where people are allowed to have firearms, but we're also not allowed to take them uh, just anywhere we like. Can you address uh, the way that you've come to think of uh, that incident and the way that you manage uh, the firearms that you own? Sure. So, you know, being raised in northern Michigan, I was raised not only to, you know, respect the Second Amendment and gun rights, but also to respect firearms. And 
certainly that incident had its embarrassing moments. And how I responded to it was I had to quickly decide I can let this impact me and I can let it bother me. But at the end of the day, if you can't control the circumstances, you can at least control your attitude about it. And my next steps were to simply dust myself off and continue moving on. Uh, but I will tell you this, moving forward, uh, there will never be an instance where, you know, I, I believe we're passing legislation that I think is going to violate, whether it's Michigan's Constitution or the U.S. Constitution. And I think gun rights are particularly important. Uh, but so is, so is gun safety and responsibility. Like many people, I made a mistake. But uh, I will tell you this, it was inexcusable. And it's something that sometimes it's important to just simply slow down and, and watch what you're doing. And uh, I, I learned to dust myself off, myself off, get back up, and uh, not pay attention to the critics of it. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a learning moment in my life. And I know many people have those, and it's something that I'm going to choose to apply in the future. Uh, again, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Representative Lee Chatfield. He is about to be the Speaker of the House here in Michigan, the youngest speaker in more than a century. He is a Republican who represents Michigan's 107th House District. Uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about schools for a second. Uh, like you, I'm a parent uh, here in Detroit. Uh, and I've got to navigate the educational landscape here, which has been shaped in the last decade very much by uh, Republican policy. Uh, actually, it's been shaped by Republican policy even even longer than that. I wonder, though, um, given the difficult choices that we have here in the city and the extreme difficulty we have as parents trying to to find uh, quality choices for our kids in the public schools or in the charter schools, uh, given the Republican, uh, uh, the aggressive Republican uh, policymaking with regard to our schools here in the in the city, I, I wonder if you can talk a little about um, how you can defend some of the things that have been done. How do you defend the idea that we, twenty some years into the charter experiment? don't have more quality choice in the city of Detroit, don't have the ability to, to shape choice the way that we were promised uh, we would be able to back in the, in the 90s. Uh, can you speak just a little to, to the policymaking that's, that's taken place and defend the outcomes? Certainly. And whenever you're discussing education, there, there should be a significant element of passion in it, because as we're talking about preparing the next generation and equipping our children with the necessary tools to be, to be successful, it's something that's incredibly important. So I can't necessarily speak, Steve, to the promises or, you know, that were made or not made 20 years ago, but happy to talk about what we've done and how I think we can continue to improve education. Now, before I came to the legislature, I was a teacher. It was, uh, it was more of a ministry than anything, Steve, because no, te- no one goes into the teaching profession to get rich. No one says, I want to invest into the lives of kids so I can have uh, you know, this long retirement and uh, vacation in Naples, Florida. That's just not why people get in. You know, the majority of teachers get in for the right reasons, and that's why I entered that profession. And I, I will talk about one piece of it, before I answer your question directly, what I found in my classroom, Steve, was that the kids that were most successful 
were most of the time, not always, but most of the time, because it was a partnership in education between the teachers and the parents. It was a system that I gave the assignment, I helped them in the school, but I got the reinforcement at home. Now, unfortunately, you know, the state of Michigan or other states around the country can't do parent evaluations, right? That's, that's ridiculous to even assume as much or to even talk about and it. And that's not the charge to the state. The charge to the state exactly. is to provide an adequate education for everybody. But, but where I'm going with that is because the state and lawmakers or even schools can't encourage or can't mandate help at home, the problem is we always go back to the teacher, you know, well, this must be the teacher's fault if the student is performing well. And, and I reject that notion. So you were always going to have the debate in Lansing will always be about the autonomy of the local school, yet the accountability that the state requires for over $14 billion going to education. And where that line is drawn is always going to be the debate. It's always going to be centered on where do we step in. And I will tell you this, we are funding our schools, K-12, through at the highest level we ever have in the history of our state. But when ranking ourselves to other states, we're still performing near the bottom. So what can we do? And in and, and talking about Detroit and talking and in about terms of Michigan, funding, in terms of funding, we're also slipping down the ladder. Uh, we used to be a top funder. Now we're in the middle. Uh, and, of, of course, the, the, ta- the states that perform at the top also spend at the top. Uh, Massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, is, is a great example of that. Maryland, uh, they spend a lot more than we do. So I will not say that there's a direct correlation between spending more money means a better education, but there are certain ways that we can improve education in our state. And I will tell you this, I don't think a quality education in our state should be limited to what zip code you live in, right? I I represent Drummond Island, and they should have the same quality education um, opportunities as Grand Rapids. So how do, how, do we, how do we get to that point, Steve? How do we get to the point where we allow teachers to actually teach? We no longer handcuff them in the classroom, while at the same time, we do have some basic accountability for the dollars we're sending. And I have charter schools in northern Michigan. You mentioned charter schools in Detroit, right? The way I know that many of my charter schools in northern Michigan are performing well is, or at least proficiently, is because parents are continuing to send them there. And I do believe, Steve, that the more we empower parents, I do believe it'll be a better educational yeah. process. You know, I, I don't feel like we're, we're not empowered here. I mean, we can make as many choices as we, as we want to. It's that the, the quality of the choices is so low. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when we're talking about improving the quality of choices and improving uh, the educational choices, whether it's charter schools, public schools, there's going to be uh, multiple areas of debate. And let me tell you this, education should not be a partisan issue. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. This is about equipping our kids, the next generation, with tools they need to be successful. And I know we're going to have a very rigorous conversation about that and how do we accomplish that. I do not believe that simply just throwing more money will improve our education. However, at the same time, every year I've been in office, we have uh, we have increased funding, and I think those are good, necessary steps. You saw last year, I think this was very important for us to do. Uh, we now uh, dedicated an additional over $100 million into our tools for skilled training. Yes, 
I think that's an important step as well. So this is a robust conversation, Steve. Okay. It's one that I look forward to. <laughs> it's one that we yeah. will continue with you uh, as we get started with the session. Thank you very much, Representative Lee Chanfield, incoming State House Speaker, for being with us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Steve. That's going to do it for me. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll see you tomorrow.